Rosemary Morrow is best known as one of Australia's most outstanding leaders in permaculture and is co-founder of the Blue Mountains Permaculture Institute. What I see in permaculture is how it can fit almost every situation from a nation through to a balcony. Mm. I'm not sure others see how that could happen. I'm not sure they really deeply understand patterns. Mm -hmm. The importance of understanding a pattern rather than an item. So instead of looking at the sick chicken, you look at the whole environment and what is the pattern of sickness among the chickens or what is the pattern of that environment. Her remarkable global impact as an educator and author has empowered many displaced, war-torn communities to heal some of Earth's most distressed places and to pass these skills on to future generations. The ethics of permaculture and Quaker influences have shaped her inspirational lifestyle and way of being in the world. In 2017, she was the re recipient of the Advanced Global Award that recognises exceptional Australians working internationally. I spoke to Ro at her home in Katoomba in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales. Thank you so much for being on our Thresholds podcast, Ro, and it's a delight to see your place and thank you for, for spending time with us. Well, I have to thank you for coming and agreeing to come. Um, you've made a huge impact around the world, uh, finding ways to heal landscapes and human communities. So I'm curious to know about your motivations and your early influences in childhood. You said that you were claimed by Earth. So tell me some of your experiences of this and what you mean by that and your earliest spiritual or religious background. Mm. Look, I'm surprised by that because... I barely remember saying it. And so that has given me a lot of things to think about, being claimed by the earth. But the more I think about it, knowing you're coming up today, the more truthful and right it seems. And then how do you know you're claimed by the earth? I can remember as a toddler, barely 18 months old, being outside and eating the peas and pulling up the carrots and eating them, putting the tops back. I can remember playing in the sandpit for hours and hours. I remember that I grew up in Western Australia, the sun on my back. A very small child, I remember, I remember hmm. always wanting to be somewhere where there was earth and dirt. And later it became evident my mother was a gardener and I loved working with her. Hmm. And she'd be making garden beds and I'd be digging. And I, then I'd want to sit in the earth and get dirty. <laughs> I would really want that dirt under my fingernails and I felt right whether the dirt smelled of compost or smelled of dust hmm. or smelled of rain. Whatever it was, I can't claim it's Aboriginal. Hmm that the earth is my mother, but I think I can still say, and it's absolutely true, that I'm claimed by the earth. And yet, it has almost a mystical sound, but in my 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 feelings, my heart, my psyche, it's indiscutable. Mm. I am claimed by the earth. And so it has ended up where in some ways repairing the earth comes ahead of repairing people. Mm. But where people are most damaged, the earth is most damaged as well. So those two go very closely together. So later in life you um, you took to the Quakers and that seems to have been quite influential for you. Can you tell us a bit about that? It was a long time later mm. and I was in England 
I'd come back from four years in Lesotho at the time of the riots in South Africa about apartheid in the last four or five years of the 70s. So I missed those in Australia. And my friend said, I go to Quaker meeting, do you want to come? Went to Quaker meeting and I thought, this is right. This is worship. Sit in silence and just listen. <laughs> not talk, not carry on, not read. Just be as present as you can. Now that made wonderful sense. However, it was when I got to the testimonies, because there are no creeds, the testimonies to peace, the testimonies to the environment, the testimony to integrity, which I love to this day, the testimony to community, and the testimony to simplicity. That's talking to me. Mm. That's what I want to hear from a religion. And testimony mm. means not only know it, but live it out. But of course there weren't any well-known ways to live it out. Mm. There were Quakers living simply, living in community, I'd say mainly with integrity, but I didn't quite know how to do it. It's as if someone said, you know, lead a good life, and you thought, well, um, where, how? Or act for climate change. Where? Where do I start? What do I do? How can I do this? So I was a bit like that about the testimonies. Where do I start? Mm. So it was some long time later, though, or a good eight years, mm -hmm. that I found permaculture. I thought permaculture provides me with the ethics, the integrity, as well as the strategies and techniques mm. to live simply to, uh, I think, create peace, probably, because Quakers do a lot on nonviolence and civil disobedience in ways that are nonviolent. And so somehow I was getting a complete picture so you've got your testimonies and then you've got how to do it and I've got Quaker influence and permaculture and I thought they were the perfect match mm. I thought they were wonderfully integrated and that's when I think I put a foot outside and I can teach this mm. Mm. it's interesting to me because we at Rahman you know we're ministry of the Sisters of Mercy mm. and the founder of the Sisters of Mercy Catherine McCauley grew, grew up for I think 20 years in mm. a Quaker household. And we are just starting to wake up to the connection between what we're trying to do in eco-spirituality and her Quaker influence mm. and, you know, earth awareness, waking up to mm. being claimed by earth. Mm. And is this something that you find happening a lot? Like the, is it is it a common thing now that the Quaker, say the Quaker, um, influence are intersecting with permaculture? Less than I'd hope. Mm. I'm much more pleased with the Mercy Sisters. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think the whole Mercy thing, you've got a better grasp than Quakers have. Um, however, Quakers are active in so many fields, mm -hmm. enormous across a number, but then so is Mercy. I'm not sure. Um, but however, it was the Mercy Sister, Patricia and Sister Pat, who got me to come to the cosmology series. And in becoming a cosmologist, that sort of deepened my spirituality in terms of the breathtakingly extraordinary fact that you and I are here today mm. at the end of millions of years of evolution and change and adaptation. And that, that understanding of observation and change and adaptation that we can do consciously, but understanding how it shaped the world and shaped us and given us a life 
that remains to me one of the enormous miracles and mysteries that make you sort of tremble inside. Mm. It's beyond human understanding. Um, so that, that's been a lovely addition for me. I think Quakers are meeting with others. Quakers are very involved with Religions for Peace and that's a growing organisation across the world about to have impact into the Australian government as a policy mm. for you know, Religions for Peace and what they're doing in policy. So I think there are intersections now in lots of ways. Mm. You've been on the permaculture path for some 40 years and you're now one of its strongest proponents around the world. Um, You've given your life to spreading this knowledge and prior to that you studied agricultural science at Sydney University, rural sociology at Sorbonne in Paris, development in the UK and horticulture at TAFE and I've read that you were very disappointed with all that learning. How did you first come to permaculture and what makes it so different and important? Um, I probably came to permaculture because of all of those, Mm. which is a paradox, and I feel a little bit embarrassed. And it would be nothing less than ungrateful not to be really appreciative of education that enables you to look at permaculture and understand what it could be. I see a depth in permaculture that perhaps is not seen by people I teach. Otherwise, I wouldn't still be teaching it. I think it was simply those other studies were largely reductionist mm. and they didn't fit me for the world very well. I didn't really understand the world as it is, and I'm not sure I do now, but understood it less in terms of poverty or exploitation or industrialization or religions and culture. So I think they contributed something as a very strong jumping-off point, but on their own, they were insufficient. Mm. They couldn't do it. Can Mm. you say a bit more about what you mean by reductionist? Mm. So if we're looking at uh, agricultural science course, so we did soil science, Mm -hmm. biochemistry, organic chemistry, um, entomology, agristology, agronomy, um, plant pathology, genetics, animal husbandry, And we could do some of those things without reference to another. So you could Mm. study soil science in a laboratory and come up with some understanding of the components, but you'd never know what grew in it. Mm. So reductionist, just getting too small. But on the other hand, I still think we have to analyse before we Mm synthesise. Because if we don't, we're likely to miss something. So a nice way of doing a, a site analysis in permaculture is to understand what we've got to work with before we synthesise. But students won't always be aware of how I'm bringing those backgrounds in, but not as the science I learned. Mm -hmm. So what's the depth then that you mentioned, that you have an appreciation of the depth of permaculture Mm. that your students may not have? Say Mm. a bit more about that. And I hope that doesn't sound patronising. I didn't mean that. What I see in permaculture is how it can fit almost every situation, from a nation through to a balcony. Mm. I'm not sure others see how that could happen. I'm not sure they really deeply understand patterns. Mm -hmm. The importance of understanding a pattern rather than an item. Instead of looking at the sick chicken, you look at the whole environment 
and what is the pattern of sickness among the chickens or what is the pattern of that environment, what's the pattern of um, erosion along a watershed that enables you to understand the pattern before you intervene. I think a lot of things go wrong in the world today because people intervene not understanding the pattern. Mm. And as we talked about now, of course, there's something called orders and they give you the magnitude of the intervention. Mm-hmm. So building huge dams in deserts, we'd say, are out of order. The magnitude of the dam in the desert, massive evaporation. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to build dams seven times as big for the evaporated water. A big dam somewhere down on the coast where you get large rainfall is better. But for the drier, and many small water holding capacities are going to work. So getting your order of intervention right in tree size, in gardens, in forests, in human settlement, understanding how that order, and when the order's right, we love it, it's beautiful. Mm. The order is right. So whether we look at some new house that's got no land around it and a metal fence, say that's disgusting, I think we're responding to the order. House that big. Mm. Or we say, why do they just got pansies along the whole 40 metres of that house? We know that in order terms they need shrubs and trees. So that's a design thing, but it's also in human settlements. It's a settlement, 40,000 people on the outskirts of Melbourne and Sydney, that requires... A farm that requires mm. more people things, that requires not just a series of houses and garages and to a train station. So order is is a really, I think, a, a profound concept and understanding the pattern and pattern interaction. Yeah. And I think that's the real topic of permaculture, but with that you can really go somewhere towards a whole lot of repair of society and and the environment. Mm-hmm. Mm. And in your experience, are there any gaps that you could name in permaculture, in the ethics and principles of permaculture? Yeah, I think I'd like a specific principle about intergenerational equity. Mm. I think that needs to be said again and again. Well, even if it's even if it's written as what would you, what are you going to tell your grandchildren? Mm. What are you going to tell them when they say why? Do we have so many storms, cyclones, landslides, floods? Why do we have this? So, yes, I think remember your grandchildren, act for your grandchildren would be really nice. Um, Another one I think would be good is that precautionary principle. You think it's going to happen, it probably will. You think the sun will come out before Christmas, it probably will. (laughs) Think your tomatoes might ripen, they probably will. Uh, if you're going downhill and you haven't fixed the wheels of the bicycle, you know, precautionary principle says fix them now, yeah. not later. Mm. So precautionary principle is partly about getting our world right too for the things we know might happen. Things that are likely, not imaginative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to see those two in there. What do you think that we should be planning for? I'm having an argument with myself at the moment about the history of words in permaculture. So they started with permanence. David and Bill started right then saying we must have permanent places, people to live in, permanent landscapes, eternally productive. Then they went to, or someone did, into into sustainability. Now people are talking about resilience. I think resilience is the biggest con that we've got. 
because it implies that if we are just resilient when the ocean comes up around Sydney mm -hmm. or west of Bathurst becomes a desert, we'll still be able to live there. Mm. Well, we won't. Mm. We have to abandon lots of places. A resilience might enable us to get on a boat and go to New Zealand or Indonesia, but resilience is not going to supply us the ability to live there if it's destroyed. So I'm thinking now resilience is a necessary quality, but what we need more than that is actually restoration and repair and start today. Mm. Repair forests, repair water, repair trees, repair renewable energy system. It has to be restored. So I think every time we take something, we should put 50% back. Mm. If your soil was grey when you started, it needs to be rich black chocolate when you finish. Mm. Mm. If you had one little pond when you started, you need to have a good sixth of your land underwater with trees around it to protect it by the time you go. We need to restore back to a time when there was enough for everyone and the climate stayed stable. Mm. Um, start this afternoon. Another one would be act, don't wait. <laughs> yes. Activate, don't wait, something like that. Mm. And the other thing is water, mm. because water is what permaculturists will have to design with too much, too little, mm. infrequent. That's what we require mm. of permaculturists to manage that water so it's more evenly spread and it's all banked. We put it there into those soil and plants and every single thing we can put water back and treat it differently. Yeah, and I'm listening to all of, you know, it's very inspirational to hear you say all of this, but you've actually done it all around the world in all these settings, various settings, um, and it's made a very significant impact, it seems to me, in places of great trauma and the most significant historical events of our times. Um, you know, if you were to choose a few chapters that, you, that should be recorded in the history books, what would they be? Actually, I haven't made a great impact. <laughs> I don't agree with that. I don't think that's true. Um, so I think I would look at Cambodia mm -hmm. because I think we got it right there by spreading it through the local women agriculture advisors and they would go to the villages and they'd teach the villages and then we did monitoring with them so then they knew how to monitor the villages. And when we came to do a project with AusAid, as it was then, Australian Aid, they said, how are you going to consider the environmental factors? And I said, but it's there in the food growing. They said, no, the environmental factors. I said, well, there's no more rubbish and mm. the composting is done differently and they've got shade trees around the house and there's no... You know, they have done that as part of increasing and rebuilding their environment. All the things that you want us to tick off, grey water, mm. um, recycling, grey water cleaning, is done as part of the project to give them water in the dry season. We've done it. They found it very hard to have an agriculture project which included all that environmental repair at the same time. Mm. And then that was one where the women taught other women, women taught other women, and that that had a big impact on thing, I think, on re-establishing food supplies in ways that were really good for people in the country. Just staying with Cambodia for a moment. Mm. Oh, you came to Cambodia shortly after the Khmer Rouge. Oh, no, I came in in wartime. 
in the came war in, in the war mm. first day. Mm. Luckily, my NGO had no idea. They wouldn't have let me go today. They would have said, But anyway, so I got off the plane and I was told to catch a taxi to a point and sit on a log and I'd be picked up somewhere else. At that time, to go 300 kilometres, we had to stay overnight in Kompong Chenung. The, partly the roads and partly the danger. And the Khmer Rouge were creating roadblocks and um, going for cars on that main road all the time. So we're supposed to travel between nine and three. And later on, I said to Pana, how did you know we'd be safe? Because the Khmer Rouge were on that road. There were landmines. They were bombing it every day. People were dying. People were being, you know, their Australians were kidnapped and killed. Uh, I had million dollar insurance against kidnapping. Oh. No one kidnapped me. Obviously, <laughs> wasn't enough. Anyway, I said to Pona, "How did you know that we wouldn't be shot up or taken or killed?" And she said, "Because I asked my monk at the monastery, mm. and he said you'll be all right." Now. I got nervous after the event. <laughs> I wanted assurance from the Khmer Rouge. But anyway, we were safe. But at that time, no one could travel at night. I was in a village one night, it was getting dark, and a crowd of black pyjama men with, you know, rocket things and AK-47s padding down the street in bare feet with, you know, 20th century ammunition and weapons. And someone said to me, quick, get out. No one's to know you're here. Go as fast as you can. Thank you so much for sharing that. And and you were there to bring permaculture. Well, people were as thin as matchsticks mm. and many had died and a lot of it was starvation. So it was to re-kick the permaculture. When I first went there, M. Ponar said, look at my desk. She had a sheet of glass on it. It's got all these cards, these, all these NGOs. They'd never come back. I said, I'll mm. come back. She said, we'll do, and I said, yes, I'll come back, because doing a feasibility. Mm. So we taught permaculture in a form that these women could go and teach it to farmers. So they'd be under a house in the village, which is the usual place, they'd call all the women in, and they'd go. And where we would encourage them to draw pictures and do things, they encouraged them to draw pictures, and in the end they said, go home and do it. <laughs> do it. And there was no leeway, no option, maybe next week and when I get a new house and I'm not sure if I want to start yet and that, but just do it. And they did it. And they certainly had fabulous gardens in a short time. But I never did the detail. So we, I did the design, where to put the water off the roof, where to put the pond, just move the garden from the far corner to close to the house, just five metres by five metres with a fence, compost in the middle, keep the pigs and the chickens and the buffalo out, all that. But they arrived at their own design because I gave them close to the house, protected, make compost, animals, all that, and then they made their own designs. So it took them through a process of limitation and potential. But then when it came to the plants, I'd say, which are the ten vegetables which grow best in your area? And they'd list them in groups of four. Now, if they grow into groups of eight and tell me which are ten. Now, whole class, someone come up because lottery literate and they'd all talk about the ten vegetables and then they could, I'd say, grow those because we had to have success. Yeah. We couldn't risk anything fancy or peculiar mm. or mightn't work. So it had to be very, very reliable. Mm. So I think I've been able to learn from that experience and take it right through. But it really got... And then, Amazing stories. 
extraordinary stories came through of families that had been starving. They might have only got the equivalent of 10 to 50 cents more a month. That was enough to buy another kilogram of rice, send a child to school or pay for school books or something. And from there they grew. So it wasn't looking at big incomes or major things. It was just seeing what they did with it. Some would sell at the taxi stations fresh vegetables. Some would go to the market. Some would have sign on the door. Some went into nurseries with plants and better plants and, and grew things. So they each took what they wanted to away and then developed that usually into both their own home and income. Mm. And I, w- I think it's the only way to go. Because mm. if you put it into an organisation, that can close down in terms of... Oh, American Quakers closed down in Cambodia. But they've gone, so the expertise is scattered. But if you put it into a group then they retain that as in-service mm. training. And it goes on. Yeah. And they follow it over the years. Yeah. You taught permaculture in places affected by war, climate change, places affected by rising sea levels and drought, for example, in refugee communities all over Africa. We've talked about Cambodia, uh, Albania, East Timor, after the occupation there, Uganda at the height of AIDS, Solomon Islands with their rising seas, Afghanistan, Iraq, and now UN refugee camps. Um, Not only UN. Not only UN. No, some are government run, Mm. some are run by UNHCR, some are run by um, Red Cross, Red Crescent, some are Mm. all different organisations, yeah. I think I'm interested in where the greatest suffering lies today. Mm. Rather than Syria, Yemen and Afghanistan, I think it's in the camps. Mm. I'm growing to understand, though I knew it, to have a deeper understanding. This uncertainty is what drives people to suicide and madness and despair. Mm. They can stand certainty. They can't stand and uncertainty. And I read it somewhere else recently, very recently, about people suffering because of uncertainty, where they'll go or what they'll do. Or I don't know why that should play so badly on the human mind, but it does. Mm. So you can't do that much about uncertainty, but you can give people a sense of transition. While I'm here, I can do this. While I'm here, I can clean the water. While I'm here, I can plant shade trees. While I'm here... I can grow a grapevine mm. and get shade and fruit. So I think, and a distraction, mm. because another thing that's, I think, appalling is take away from people anything that they might use to occupy their minds or hands. So I think prisons do it well in a cell with no books, no writing paper. If you read those people who triumphed over that, they were usually going through poetry on their head or writing in the toilet paper or making marks on the wall. But to be deprived of any occupation during your day, it's all very well for us to say we're too busy and we're stressed. Mm. Take everything away and I think most of us would fall in a hole. Mm. I think we'd manage two weeks' meditation quite happily. Mm. But let it go on. Taken away all the meaning, hasn't it? Mm. Every purpose and every bit of ourselves that we can imagine. It's very, very dreadful punishment. Mm. Cruel, inhumane, intolerable. So I think camps have all that 
very, mm. very strongly. So with permaculture, it reaches so many people. You can have someone who's doing seeds, you can have someone who's cooking something, you can have someone doing their own garden, you can have someone doing street planting, you can have someone putting things in little cans outside of their place. And it's a common topic with no pain to it usually. Did your beans come up? <laughs> Did your tomato yeah. grow? On the other hand, I don't like just gardening in camps that's too transient. I think mm -hmm. tramps have to be transformed into permanent villages. They would certainly be occupied in places like Bangladesh by the locals if ever refugees went home. And if they live there, they can share their skills and knowledge. It's, mm. It just wins for everyone. Mm. There's no downside to it. So what's happening inside of you that gets you out there? And you said that you're seeking these places of the greatest suffering. Mm, I think it's outrage. Mm. I think it's outrage. I think not far inside me I could almost burn up with fury. And to find the Australian government, 166 nations signed on for a more humane and better way of receiving mass migrants from places. Australia is one that didn't sign. Mm. All my non-violence starts to go out the window. <laughs> I think I'm starting to steam like a dragon. I'm so furious and deeply, deeply distressed by, I think it's partly reflected, they have no humanity that makes them despicable and I don't want to despise anyone. Mm. Mm no response to suffering that makes them sound like a mob of psychopaths that can't respond to human suffering and anguish, a sense of sitting on my pile, this gated community we call Australia, and saying, we're not sharing with you. You few people who would just like a better life and would contribute to our lives, economy and richness, diversity, oh, I think I'd go a long way to... To work in that. Now I think I'm getting. I'm getting too old and tired. But same token, I can't stop mm. not until I've got really good replacements. The thing mm. is that the requests keep coming in, so I'm somehow need to get more people out there. Mm. So it's called permaculture for refugees. Mm -hmm. Small group. We spent twelve months getting it together, and we really have got some promising stuff happening now. Quakers have just given us about 70,000 for courses in Bangladesh with Rohingya. I hope that'll grow into an ecological school there and people monitoring others and teaching them in groups as well. Can you open up a door for me into that world when you're just arriving in a place where the people are so desperate and the landscape's just, you know, desolate? Where do you start? What's your approach? People often don't appear desolate. Mm -hmm. They're walking around the place. They'll be pushing a child or have walking a child or they'll be, they're on rations, so they're going to get mm. that dreadful oil, rice, tea, coffee, tin fish that's handed out. And it's going to run out from World Food Project. That will finish. They can't have, there's not enough. And countries like Australia and America are not paying their part to World Food Program, the UN, to help. So people will appear as if they have things to do, but actually they have hours sitting around and that plays. So at first, all I do is look at how to set this thing up. I run my eye over it. It's almost as if my head's swirling and I'm surveying what's outside the fence, what's inside the fence, what, where's the slope, 
Where, what's, is that grey water running down there? What's a child doing playing in that filthy, oily slime? What's happening here? Little children falling on the bad roads and hurting themselves. No shade at all. It goes to 50 degrees. So really, I'm just getting this, trying to pick up everything at once, which is what I learnt from permaculture but never learnt from agriculture science. So I would only have seen one thing, a specialist thing. Because of permaculture, I'm using a systems approach to pull it all together and see the whole lot. So the wind pruned trees together with the houses, the camps, the um, tents that may have blown down last night, the temperature, lack of stuff. That's a type of a registering process that's become automatic. That's sort of mm. going like this. And, and I'm saying, I need to get to the highest point. They say, oh, we're going to show you the classroom. No, I need to see the highest point. I need to walk around the fence line and I need to have a look you know, at see if anyone is growing anything in this place. Mm. They say, oh, well, we've got the classroom. And I say, yes, okay. So it's not just the refugees. The management of the camp is pretty depressing. Mm -hmm. And the managers are real equipped off and get those jobs. I don't know if they're paid for it or mm. government puts them in. They certainly get paid by refugees, I'm sure there's. Mm. You can pay to be able to bring in something or get something, I don't know. Um, and then I just want to look at where to teach because I've been to places where there's nowhere to teach. And you look outside and you look along the fence line and you look for a bit of grass and then you go back and look and walk around and around getting more and more frantic, more and more upset with how can you do the things you need to do, how can we really show people composting, how can we really show them how to plant a tree. Just simple stuff, but it's essential. Mm. They become essential skills. We have big rubbish piles and people. And then once we do that, then... I start to think about the people because it's like care of the earth comes before care of people. The resources and the environments there that you know what you're going to do with and the people within it bring them together around that. Mm -hmm. Now, strangely enough, my first time I was in camps, I thought everyone was going to be depressed, unhappy, despairing, and they said to me, only six people will come. So we started with 60 and we ended up with 42 graduating yeah. and they didn't miss a day. Or occasionally if a tent blew down, someone with six children and the 10-year-old was minding five would say, I have to go home and look after the children. They made huge efforts to come and they were feisty as all get out. You'd mention the word chicken and 60 people would say, my chicken, that chicken. <laughs> You'd say, can you please be quiet? Can you fall down my please? Go, no, they're not used to being quiet. Next thing, arguing about chickens among themselves. Then you say, fruit tree, and it would be like, start the chaos. <laughs> then if you mention goat, start the chaos. House, start. And everyone would be shouting and talking and arguing. <laughs> and the other thing they would do, they'd all get up and link arms. And then they dance. Mm. And we'd say, have a little break, up for a dance. Mm. Someone start to sing, doing all this Greek middle, this is the Syrians. Mm. I loved the people so much. I thought they were wonderful. And the money cut out, and we couldn't do the second course, and it dwindled away with no monitoring. So I know you have to do a second course in monitoring, or the impact will be lost against the other emergencies. But, um, yes, and different people and different different responses. The um, internally displaced refugees in Afghanistan are very aggressive. Mm. 
Mm. Very angry, very upset with their situation, which is worse than a refugee camp. Yeah. Not chunk choice. Really shocking. So, um, no, I've come back sometimes. I've thought the countries are going backwards. The humanitarian stuff's going backwards. These people's lives are going backwards. And I have thought, there's nothing except to keep doing it, but I don't believe there's hope. Mm. Um, and yet we have to hope. Anyway, there's nothing else to keep tra- except to keep treading the path. It's a bit like being lost. Yeah. You don't sit down. You have to keep finding that path to get out somehow. Mm. So people are contacting us now that want it. So just coming back to how you how you experience what it is you do and when you come back and being on that path, what place would grief have in your life as you work with these communities and as you think about the future as well? How do you deal with or honour your experience of so much suffering? An Afghani woman said to me once, don't cry for me, work for me. And so I'll put aside a lot of my own grief, I think, except there are moments where I feel quite frantic. The pain can rise up too much. If if there's too much in a year, mm. it's too hard. And so between Kashmir, Iraq, Afghanistan a couple of times, I think last year was one of the worst years I went through. I don't think it's psychological because... I seem to remain myself somehow and continue going and doing. Um, But I do think at that stage the only thing I could get as an answer was my spirit is sick. And certainly at one stage I had to change my worldview, a Quaker view of there is that of God in everyone. I had to throw that right out the window because when there's a disaster, whether it's a tsunami or an earthquake or a war, First people to get on planes to go into those places. Uh, People who traffic children, traffic women, traffic drugs. And I've seen it in Phnom Penh. I've seen it in Hanoi. I've seen it in Tirana, Albania. They're in the camps. Children are being sold out of the camps. And last night I heard that they're being sold with their bodily organs. And so three little children I met in Afghanistan said to me they were grabbing kids for their kidneys across the border. So there's a level where political people are stuffing up lives and playing their stupid ego games of you're my enemy and my bomb's bigger. There's another level where humans predate upon the vulnerability of others that did not ever fit into my understanding, spirituality or worldview. I had to change it to an enormous valuing of a country with good laws. And if those people behave like that, they go to prison and they stay there a long time. But I have lost hope. In, you know when you lose innocence in the garden of good and evil and you know about evil? I think when you know about evil to that degree, you've lost your innocence. Also lose it over the fact that we know about climate change and we're not doing enough to save it. It's another loss of innocence. Mm. Both those. And you'll never go back to being quite as happy and as carefree as you were. Mm. You can't. 
because you can't live with that denial. It's, it wouldn't be possible. But I think it's really wrong not to say how lucky I am to have a fine day or a bit of garden or a bird's outside eating a wattle seed or friends that I can phone. I think that is enormously, enormously wonderful. And who summit in Cambodia said to me, like she told me the story of her life under Pol Pot and being the eldest of 13 children. And I said to her, do you have children? And she said, no. She said, I was afraid they'll die in your arms. And I said, were you, did you nurse a sick baby for your mum? And she said, yes. But she went on to say at the end of Pol Pot and the regime, I've got my life. And it was more than responsibility. It was the most fabulous thing you could have this life. There's no other near it for thousands of life years. It's a responsibility and it should really be a joy for whatever comes together that we can be alive and women and in a country like Australia it's given us a pretty good go. So you, there's your grief. Well, that might be the price hmm. of all the rest. But I don't think you ever resile from what you have to do because it might you mightn't be able to bear it. I don't agree with that. The, everyone I meet is bearing much more than me. Mm. And they're bearing it with grace and humour and sometimes anger and generosity. No. no. I'm curious to know more about the way that you actually live your lifestyle. Mm. Um, because you've said that consumerism and materialism have always been a bit dubious for mm. you. Um, and I'm curious about how in light of permaculture perhaps and perhaps Quaker influences, um, how, how you choose to live. Um, I think you're blessed if you don't have a gene for ambition. So there was a man called John Woolman, a Quaker, American Quaker, and when he got to I think 80 pounds a year, I think maybe one of the Wesleys did this too, he said I don't need any more to live, I don't need any more money. That's enough. So enough became his cry. So he just lived on that for the rest of his life. And I feel very much in that situation. So sometimes I've got big bills. Sometimes I save a bit and glaze some more doors and windows. Um, then I've got a little bit of disposable income if I want to send it places that I haven't got a budget. Um, all secondhand clothes, totally. This is the most beautiful. Jumper, you should have admired it. Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> Lovely. Um, I have a garden, I have a food co-op, um, I have a second-hand car that I share with Jenny when she's here, um, someone who lives the other side of Katoomba. I don't want anything, really. Mm -hmm. I think a long time ago I didn't want anything. That was a Buddhist influence. Mm -hmm. Once burnout needs will stay with you. If you need a pullover on a cold day, you'll keep on feeling cold till you pull over. You need it. But once just burn up, mm. they go away. You just sit with it for a day or two and yeah. finish. My idea is to live up there in my little shed with six key books <laughs> and the solar panels and the pond out the front and the much better passive solar than here. Mm. And someone else can have this place. I'm not even interested in income. I don't mm. want any more money. Mm. But I think a house like this, someone might like living in it. And is it true you don't accept any payment for yep. your work? 
and I have it for a few years. I had to with World Vision because World Vision said volunteers are totally unreliable, so we are paying you whether you want it or not. And series a bit the same, but there was a young trainee with me who's desperately needs it. So I wrote to them today and said, "Can you? I'll invoice you, but can you make it payable?" Mm. So yeah, um, it makes you very happy and unburdened. And when I retire, all I'm going to do is play recorder and do bush regeneration, and my life will be perfect. Mm. Soon as someone takes over permaculture for refugees, and if you're out there, come and talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think once we get the first six, we've already got four done in camps. If we get another five done, we'll have the evidence, and then I think UNHCR and the big players in this mm. who are looking for answers to providing food forever and know well there are going to be more refugees will come forward with the model that we prove. Mm. That's my dream. Mm. Perhaps I'll finish with this question. In your courses you teach about the function of everything in a mm. landscape um, and for the landscape to heal itself successively, whether it be the pioneering plants that protect soil, the nitrogen fixes the deep-rooted plants that bring up nutrients, fine leaf trees for cleaning air, so on. What do you see as the main function of the human? It would probably be to restore and watch and observe the natural and the human systems with an effort to create something more lovely and more beautiful, I think. Humans are capable of doing it because we do so much in art and in performing arts and poetry and for each other in terms of volunteers, but I think we've lost it completely about our role to restore the natural environment, to bring it back to a state where we can say to our grandchildren, well, we stuffed it up for 200 years and then we saw the light. And it's all yours today, back in good hands and good health. Now, we can do it in repairing, restoring a house. Landscape's much more creative and fun than that. Yeah, our job is to restore and repair now. I can't see anything else. And I believe all our activities in light of the latest IPCC results should be put towards that mm. for everything we do. Repair, restore. From a tiny yard to a big yard, mm. repair, restore. And reduce our consumption. Mm. Mm. Can't see it in other words. And then we will be full of awe for what emerges because it's always greater than what we think when we put it there. That is the awe. Mm. What emerges is so synergistic and different from what we could imagine and more beautiful. There's nothing better actually as well. Mm. And we'd all be healthy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. What lies ahead for Romoro? Oh, Janu <laughs> January, Bangladesh. Oh. Today, writing project proposals, see if Lush will fund mm. something. Mainly the perma, um, mainly the permaculture for refugees. Until that's launched, I can see us having a node in Europe and a node in perhaps the Philippines or Australia, mm -hmm. because we'll have many, many more refugees here. And I think permaculture might change. Ideally, it'd be refugee run. Mm. Mm. So that does it. But now there are increasing calls from places like Hong Kong wanting to know 
about these cities. Mm. If you think about it, there are lots of interesting solutions. The whole sun-facing site could be turned into greenhouses yeah. to feed people. And they could have great pools of water and water plants on various floors and car parking could go and worm farms can be on, you know, other, other aspects. The buildings could just, a building could be retrofitted as a village, not just having green walls or green growing on it, but providing through the glass and the setup. Mm. You could create one of 3,000 people, you could create three mm. villages of seven Three villages of 10,000 people with markets and woods and growing and things. Very mm. possi possible. Possible. Mm. Oh, but imagine. highly imaginative. For yeah. What they do now. Yeah. yeah. And you've so prepared for us uh, some reading. The Earth Prayers from Around the World mm. and Invocations for Honouring the Earth. And at various times, I'll look up something. And I haven't looked at this for a little while. It certainly looks much loved, <laughs> all the bookmarks. <laughs> oh, I think I like this one. Where's it come from? Stephanie Casa, Green Gulch Farm. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to take what's not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to harbour ill will towards any plant, animal or human being. Mm. I think that's a nice one. Mm. Yeah, sort of ecological, fits in with creating ecosystems. Yeah. Mm. Huh. Well, Ro Morrow, thank you so much for... <laughs> Teaching us about the intertwining of all of life yeah. and for giving your life to the healing and restoration. Look, of I'm, Earth. I'm not exactly giving. That was, <laughs> that was a word. I'm living it. You're living it. Yeah, mm. Mm. Sort of. I think having a lot of experience now. Mm. Maybe what I give back is a gift. Mm. But for my life, this is the way I lead it. Mm. Well, we're so grateful for that example. And I'm grateful <laughs> for people like you who follow up and do those other things, who come to permaculture courses and who carry it through mm. and who live it at Raha Min and have little signs up everywhere. Do you know where our toilet paper comes from? <laughs> <laughs> so I think Raha Min's one of the leading examples too. Places like Raha Min give me hope. Mm. Sometimes I need a bit of hope. Mm. Raham is the sort of place it does. Mm. Thank you so, so much. And thank you so much. <laughs> Raham Ecology Centre is an ecological ministry of the Institute of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea, facilitating a new worldview for our times and our relationship with the natural world through education, spirituality and advocacy. 
For more information about us and our programs, please visit www.rahamim, that's R-A-H-A-M-F-A-M-F-A-M-F-A-M-F-A-M-F-A-M-F-A-M-F-A-M-F-A-M-F-A-M-F-A-M-F-A-M-F-A-M-F-A-M-F-A-M-F-A-M-